0: What you are, basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.
1: Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric
0: and structure of existence. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and this is episode number 14. Thank you so much for joining me. In today's show, I've got a very interesting conversation to share with you. It's one of my favorite ones yet. It's with Mr. Howdy McCoskey. Now, this is one I've really been looking forward to sharing with you all because Howdy is an extremely interesting thinker. He's done some fantastic work exploring both hidden histories and more recently, the nature of reality. Now, one of the reasons I thought it'd be really awesome to get Howdy on the show is because he's got such a different viewpoint, a different perspective as to the nature of reality than I do. So in part one, I'm going to be talking with Howdy about hidden histories. So this is the less controversial stuff. Although it is controversial to some, it's not controversial I guess to people in our community and he's done some brilliant research on the world's fairs and for those of you that are not aware these were giant expositions that took place across the 1900s. They were being done across the world and they involved hundreds of acres being used in cities to put up these incomprehensibly complex and large fairs which were not really fairs at all. They were entire towns that were being constructed for this often with extremely elaborate buildings and structures in ancient Greco-Roman style. They would have thousands of people working on these and they would put up these towns and then people would go and they'd have this really immersive experience in these pop-up cities where these huge swaths of history would be pushed upon them, these narratives, or should we say supposed history, of Western civilization, enacting giant plays and battles from histories, showing artifacts that even be human zoos. And the upper excellence of society would go and see this and essentially learn their history. Now at this point, I should probably throw in a quote, which is, he who controls the past controls the future. And that gives you a hint as to what might have really been going on here and explore that with Howdy in part one. So that's a fantastic episode in and of itself but that kind of leads us into part two where we're going to be going into Howdy's most recent research, his most recent work which is on the nature of reality. And like I mentioned before Howdy has a very controversial take on this. This is where me and Howdy really differ but yet we find so many parallels in our thoughts on what we must do about the problem of evil and suffering. So whilst working from completely different premises we ultimately arrive at the same place and see many of the same solutions so that's coming up in part two it's a really exciting conversation I think members are going to absolutely love it we kept that for the members section purely because Howdy said he'd like to keep these conversations now for private podcasts because the work just simply has been that controversial and that's just a little bit of an insight into how impactful some of Howdy's work has been but like I said whether you agree with Howdy or not and Howdy will be the first person to admit that he doesn't know himself he's simply exploring what he thinks is is true. And he'll always say, whatever your truth is, that's what you should follow. So whether you agree with him or not, it's just really worth listening to somebody like Howdy so that you can re-examine your own thoughts and maybe see things from a different perspective. And like I said, we find so much common ground. And ultimately, for me, really doesn't matter right now if somebody believes we came from x or y or where they think we're going either what matters most is how we are living so that's part two so i'm going to leave it there for the introduction a big thanks to howdy for coming on the show we have some information later on in the show how you can get in touch with howdy and find his books so members please head over to parallelmike.com where you can listen to the full conversation for those who listen to part one if you enjoy it and you'd like to join us over there we would love to have you It is one month for free if you join as an annual member, so please check that out. Also members, please don't forget to comment underneath the video. I would love to hear your feedback on this one specifically. What do you think of Howdy's take? Does it align with your own? Do you have differences? And also please let me know if you have any questions for Howdy because I would love to get Howdy back on the show. I'm pretty sure he'll join us because we had such a good conversation. So if you have a question for Howdy members, please let me know in the comments under the video and I will try to put some of them to him next time. Just one final thing before I go. I am still doing my preparedness consultations and i'm also doing depth tarot sessions if you don't know what they are you can check out my website but i will be doing an episode in the coming weeks all about the tarot and i'll talk a little bit in that about what my depth tarot sessions are like but for anyone that's interested in getting prepared for the coming financial crises please check out my website under preparedness consultations also my debt tarot sessions are there too i'm going to leave it there for tonight's introduction that's long enough thank you so much for listening have a fantastic week wishing you all good health and happiness and of course i will see you all in the next one Adi, thank you for taking some time out of your busy life to speak to us today. How are things going? Things are going okay. I'm a little tired. I was at a conference uh, the weekend in Bath,
1: England, uh, sort of like a freedom conference. And it was very short notice and a lot of travel and very busy stuff. But and I've got uh, because Norway, where I live, has had terrible weather for like May. So we haven't been able to plant any of our crops. So finally, we can get the crops in the ground. So it's it's busy time all together
0: how you doing yeah we're good howdy yeah we're getting our crops in the ground too so it's nice to know that you're planting out there i don't know how people do it with such short seasons because our seasons feel short enough
1: it's a big a big part of it is uh, knowing knowing your crops first of all so certain crops are, are you can choose certain ones you can't and of course if you have access to a greenhouse
0: that's a big help Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and do you and your wife plant every year How do you, is it um yeah. food, food just for yourselves or do you make uh more than just your own needs
1: no it's more trying to see how close we can get to a bit of self-sufficiency and you know of course your first step is can you get to about 50 percent?
0: when you hit the 50 percent mark you're doing you're doing well yeah awesome well that's good to know it's nice to know you're doing that too cool. and uh and just before we leave the subject of Norway how long have you been out there almost almost 10 years Ten years, wow! And uh, have you fully assimilated into that place? Because I moved about two years ago, and it's uh, it's quite a big thing to go to a country that's quite different to the one that you was originally born in.
1: Yeah, it's and and it's a it, this is a little tricky because it's uh, the from I'm a Canadian originally, and the countries um what do you call it? like the landscape and the environment look the same, the people kind of look the same, so you're kind of fooled into thinking it's kind of the same. But once you get into the culture and and the way people operate it's not it's quite different and yeah it does take a long time to sort of to sort of understand this is how things are done here and uh so it takes a while it it took about five years to kind of figure it out
0: that's cool yeah i've never met anyone that's moved out to norway but i know a few people over there and it's uh because of that rich legacy and that The mythology there, I think that I mean, what in Poland where I am, they've got the Catholic roots, so it was quite an easy transition from one to the other. But I think the moment you start going out of traditional belief structures, and they've got this latent one that's underneath it, then it can all of a sudden it feels normal for a while, but then all of a sudden you start to learn there's these weird traditions. I mean, sometimes we get pagan traditions over here that I've never seen before, uh, and uh, I immediately recognise them as pagan, and there's no no evidence of them at all in the UK actually. But so that's always interesting for me.
1: What's what I found most interesting? One of the things I studied when I first came here was the stone, cir- their stone circles. There's stone circles all over Norway and Sweden, like ha- like a hundred of them. And the local population doesn't know anything about it. Like they would get on planes, right, and go to England to go see Stonehenge and and you know Avebury and whatever. And it's like, but you got them right down the road. They're right there, you know. And they just they either don't know about them or they ignore them. They just you know they 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 have bad they have bad uh, They've been given bad information about them. And so they just stay away from them. And it's like, but then on the flip side, they're energetically pristine because nobody goes there. They're like, as you know, as opposed to places that are getting a thousand people a day. I mean, that they're clean energetically. So it's really an interesting shift that they've got all of these ancient sites here, but nobody pays any attention to them.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. In part one, I'd love to get into this kind of idea of hidden histories or histories that have been shifted and altered to make them seem like there's something they're not. And in part two, it'd be really nice to talk about your most recent work, Exiting the Cave. But I know you wanted to discuss that maybe in part two, because it's more controversial work. And uh, that'll be interesting to kind of draw that out as to why it's been so controversial. But I thought this would be a great opportunity, Howdy, just to discuss this idea of alternative histories and you've done a lot of work on this. You are, is it history that you did as an academic as well? Howdy.
1: Yeah, I went to, I took a history degree, um, way back 20, 30, well 30 years ago now. Um, and I did question the narrative some then. I was never I was never an easy student, let's say, for a professor. Um, but I didn't push it as much as I should have. Like looking back now after the work I've done, I'm like, well, how and why did I just accept a lot of this stuff so easily? And um, so it's also an interesting thing to see that how indoctrinated we all are without really even knowing it and how particularly a university is very, I mean, I learned, there are many things I learned at university. I learned how to research, I learned how to properly document. I mean, I got some great stuff out of it, but it's also a very box pushing focus. You know, this is an answer and you're supposed to stay in these answers and don't go outside of it. So um, in a sense, I'm really glad I only did my basic four-year degree and I didn't go on and get MAs or anything else after that, which I, could have done, but I I didn't. I just didn't feel like it there were circumstances at the time that were pushing on me not to do that. And I'm kind of glad because I, when I first began, which was 80 97, 98, coming out of a depression, real bad depression, and I started working on ancient Egypt, I was clean in a sense that I didn't have any stuff in my head about ancient Egypt or archaeology. I could start literally fresh and I could just come to the answers as they came to me. And of course. I gravitated very quickly to guys like John West and Graham Hancock was writing at the time and a few others that indicated that all we know about these ancient civilizations was wrong. And that was kind of how I started, was trying to uncover the Egyptians and the Mayans and the Inca and whatnot.
0: You know, it's interesting that you said that. I did my first degree in theology and I had the exact same experience. It was I look back on it now and I think, well, I really learned nothing during that degree. And people always say, oh, theology, well, you must know a lot about X, Y, and Z. it's like, no, I absolutely learned nothing in that degree. The only thing I did learn was how, like you, how to research. I got used to spending silly amounts of time looking over text and things like this. Uh, but in essence, it was a very, very basic degree. And... Is probably something that you could have taught yourself in a few, few months uh, easily if you wanted to, and it, it certainly didn't give me that elasticity of thought to go outside the box. Fortunate to have one professor though, Howdy, who was uh, he was actually a friend of Sartre. He he went to the same university as him, and now he was a very interesting thinker, uh, and he taught me all about existentialism, um, and he Nietzsche and Sartre and all of these texts that he was giving me. Uh, and because of him, I, I kind of kept my appetite throughout it because I always chose his modules, thinking, "Well, I know at least with this guy, I'm going to get something unique."
1: What's really interesting, because you mentioned
0: that that name,
1: we'll talk about this in the second part, obviously, but because Sartre, he had the uh, he had the the one play, um, no egg, no not no exit. That is it, no exit. The one,
0: the one where the three the three are in the hotel room. I think it is No Exit or something similar.
1: That's a brilliant uh, little description of our reality, actually, that one play. And then for me, when I was in high school, I, I had a good teacher in high school who pushed uh, a lot of books that you're not supposed to read into the curriculum. And one of them was uh, um, The Plague by Albert Camus which, of course, another existentialist piece, which was just outstanding. So I was lucky also to have some of this existentialism as well in my early uh, reading experience, because that's important no matter what. No matter what you're going to study, if you think everything is wonderful and perfect and is always presented honestly, then you're not going to look really deep into it. And actually, one of the things existentialism does is kind of pushes you up against a a stark reality and kind of makes you start asking questions. That's kind of really, I think, what existentialism is meant to do, is just get you to to go through their material and start asking, why are things the way they
0: are then? So valuable stuff. I completely agree. Uh, reading Nausea was a life-changing book for me, uh, because when I got to the end of that book, that was kind of that age where I was questioning a lot and that's why I I chose theology as a degree actually and coming to the end of nausea it's actually a hopeful message it's yes this is an absurd reality that we live in uh, but you can make something here that can transcend your own existence and he says at the end of the book it would have to be something beautiful and hard as steel to make man ashamed of his own existence and I thought that was just our whole predicament here like we're trying to set ourselves on what is an essentially this kind of illusory place and uh, but it can be done you know you can create and that's the beautiful part of life we do have this divine free will so um, that yeah same kind of view on existentialism well do we there there's there's your question do
1: we really have this free will we like to think we do Um, and then there's movies like the adjustment bureau which if you watch it carefully indicate Maybe not as much as people think. Well
0: that that would be fantastic to get into because uh I, I think we probably yeah. would disagree, would disagree there. And I really like speaking to people who give me new ways of looking at things. And and to be honest, Howdy, I would say a lot of your most recent work challenged me a lot. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you, because that that's exciting to have somebody come across and say, actually, no, it's completely different.
1: Same with history. But even with even with the historical stuff, it's I'm also present. I mean, it, it hasn't always been so well perceived. There's a lot of people who haven't liked what I've been saying, which is basically history is a lie. And a lot of lot don't like that.
0: Yeah, I see. It was, it's much easier for me to get behind that because I came to the same conclusions a long time ago as well. And when you meet somebody like yourself in terms of your literature and you go into that and somebody does a deep dive on those things, Uh, It's just like, wow, this person's really put together, even if it's just one small element. If you go deep into one small element, you can unveil the truth. Uh, And that's what you did in terms of the world's fairs. And I was speaking to you just before we started. And I said, uh, I remember the first time I came across you was in reference to your work on the world's fairs. And I remember even the car journey because we were so enthralled. Me and my wife was listening to it. I think it was about a two or three hour podcast because you were on, on Sam Tripoli's show. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that, Howdy. How did you get into the World Fairs and what was it, if we go for that 10,000 foot view, that you found out about them?
1: Yeah, so I'd, I'd come out, I'd had my death experience in 2005. I'd done my sort of eight years of ancient research. Then I had a death experience in 2005, and that led to a completely different change of seeing the world and reality and wrote something else. But I hadn't written anything for a number of years, and I was in Florence. And I was down studying uh, cathedrals. Is what I was doing. I was looking for how they were energetic machines, and I was tracking the the way that these cathedrals might work. And it's like it it set off an energy inside me. When I got back, I was looking up more of the subject, and I bumped into a video somewhere or information on the Chicago Exposition of eighteen ninety three. And once I started looking at it, I mean, it's the same buildings, it's the same structures I'm looking at, it's this energetic construction. And then I started looking into the story of the fairs, right, where they build these thousand acre sites uh, in record times, have the fair and then get dynamite and blow them up. And right away, it was just, this has to, and I went looking for books on, it. well, who somebody's got to have written about this, you know, it's so insane. And no one had written a book about it. So it was just, well, I guess that's what I have to do. And I thought for a long time, the buildings, the story of these impossible buildings is the real story of the fairs. But as you know, from hearing the conversations and whatnot, that it's actually what was going on at the fairs that's even more important, um, because I think they were were using them to prepare, project the reality we've lived since then. So it's a huge topic
0: of what these things were. I'm not sure if all listeners will be aware of the World's Fair. I think some will. And Howdy's got a book on this. That's fantastic. But they went from from like the 1780s, 90s, and they they run right through to the early 1900s. And they were everywhere. They were traveling all, all across the place. But the word fair really doesn't do them justice. Because if you think of a fair today, you think of this kind of fun fair. It's like, no, these were actually entire towns. Uh, you said uh, hundreds, if not thousands of acres of sites with magnificent buildings yeah
1: that's just right on the cover here so that's like there there's there's so that's the cover people would think that's Rome and it's not it's Chicago 1893 and they built a thousand acres yeah well that
0: that is I'm so glad you had that image and if you're listening to this just just google it and look at some of these images from these places these are absolutely surreal and these were huge and they were traveling around but like you said it's almost like these fairs um, there was something else going on yeah. there because after the fairs were over, they destroyed all of these buildings. And I wanted to ask you, Howdy, why were they destroying these buildings? It doesn't really quite make sense. I know a few of them still exist, but most of them have just been wiped out. It's it
1: that part of the story is so strange. So for anyone who doesn't know, the first World Fair happened in 1851. Again, suppose that's pretend historical timelines correct here. Uh, 1851 in London at the Crystal Palace. At again another massive building that was just thrown up in record time with an architect who kind of didn't know what he was doing. Um, And they began, yeah, they went for about 50 or 60 years in this let's call it Greek Roman style. So all the buildings had a look like you were in downtown Rome or downtown Athens is the best way to describe it until the first world war. After the first world war, the fairs continued. They still had one in Dubai like a year ago very strange world fair in Dubai. Um, but they, they they changed. They started making now futuristic buildings and it was all about space and science and evolution and technology. And But in this period of time, it was about new technology, new ideas, the advancement of humans over primitive, um, the theory of evolution. These were a lot of things that were built into the fair. So the, the problem with the blowing up of the buildings, you've got two when you come to the building, you've got two problems. You've got one, you've got okay, so you've got a thousand acres supposedly built uh, what they claim is a very cheap material known as staff. It was a material that they claim is just like plaster and, and they would put it up on wood and you know kind of like like movie sets. that's kind of how they try to describe it. Um, even that, to put up a thousand acres in less than two years in that just with that material is is insane. Uh, when you consider the the, the uh, electrical tower in Buffalo, I think that was 235 feet high and had elevators that ran to the top so that you could have views over the entire fair in Buffalo. Like, are you going to build that out of plaster and wood and potentially have that collapse and kill thousands of people? Like, no, you know. So you got this problem of like you've got this massive amount of buildings. And when you look at the buildings... There's no question. Some of them are simplistic buildings. You know, they are, there was definitely building going on at these world expositions. I don't doubt that at all. The problem becomes there's many buildings when you look at the photographs do not in any way look like pre-built building. It looks old and even have weathering. I mean, they they look ancient and they look like out of marble and proper stone. And so my question started to become either you got two answers. First for the building part, we'll get to the blowing up part next. But for the building part, Either you've got a, an ancient civilization that had to have been there that had used these buildings as part of their cities, and that they were being not a lot of it wasn't being built, it was being um expro, expropriated. Is that the right word? Uh, to uh pretend to clean them up, paint them, and pretend you built them, or the other side of it, they must have had a building technology that they're not supposed to have almost to the, the likes of 3D printing virtually to be able to get this done because we've got no much. I asked a Sorry, sometimes I ramble when I get on the subject, but I talked to the book really didn't begin until about a month in when I went to talk to some building contractors, people who build large scale stuff. And I showed them the pictures of the expositions and they first said, what is this? And I explained to them what it is and then told them the story of how this was built. They said, what? Two years? I said, yeah. I said, could you build this today? Could you build the Chicago exposition for us today? Like they said, yeah. I said, well, what would you need? Oh, give me like 50,000 guys. Give me an unlimited budget. Uh, I would need two years to plan it because of all the canals and the lakes. That's really, really difficult. Never mind the buildings. I need two years to landscape it. And then give me 10 to 12 years and we can get the buildings up. I said, to this kind of degree of finishing, yeah, I can do that in 10 to 12 years. So about 15 to 18 years with modern machines and 50,000 workers, you could get it done. Yeah. So then I asked them, how did they do that in 1891? He said, it's not possible. You know, someone who does this for a living, not possible. So right away, you've got this, then what the hell's going on to even put these things up? And like you say, there's 500 of them all over the world, going everywhere from the Philippines to Brazil, to South Africa, to India, to China. I mean, they're everywhere. And then they just, yeah, then they blow them all up. It makes no sense whatsoever.
0: If we contrast that with what what we see today, when they want to completely indoctrinate society and if we go back to let's say covid of the past few years what you got was something that was absolutely everywhere it was completely pervasive all across the world the same message was being repeated and uh, it gives us this false, and it gave us the false narrative. And historically, people are going to look back; they're going to erase voices like ours and say, "Oh, those people." No, there's no, there was, there was no contradiction, and there was nobody saying that this was anything other than what it was. And that will be the official narrative. And it's almost like if you look back at the world fairs, for them to have done this across the world on such a scale, it had to have a really strong purpose and message. And I guess what my question would be is, were what, what, they doing what the mainstream media and Hollywood and mobile phones do today? And that's give us this false narrative and, and kind of force it upon us so deeply that after that, everything's changed, everything's different.
1: That's fully on, Michael. That's exactly, I think, what, what we're dealing with before movies, before TV, before the internet. This was the way of getting, like you say, a message repeated over and over and over again. And of course, only like elite people or people with money can pay to go to the fairs. They're very, they're, they were cheap to get in, but to do anything was very expensive. So the average people couldn't go to these things. But that would mean all the school teachers were going, all the professors were going, all the people who were uh, running any businesses. So that means that information got into them. And of course, if the teacher then presents, oh, here's what I learned at the World's Fair that the Smithsonian Institute showed me, so it must be tr- must be correct. And you pass that information down that way, all of a sudden you hit... Within a generation, you've got the message passed on to everybody, even though you haven't reached them individually. And I think two of the main things when you dig, when I say that there's there's books about every one of the fairs, I don't mean written now, like now, I mean then. At the end of every exposition, there were like 5,000 page books written about the history of the area, the history of the fair, the history of how it was done, and every exhibit that was there. Like they're literally five, 10,000 page books. And as you start digging into these, you find out what's really going on. Two of the biggest ones that I think were happening that for our discussion that answers your question is one human zoos. So they had these areas set up where they wanted to show primitive humans off to the, of course, the Victorian elite to show the, and they made sure that they put them in the most, you know, the most primitive conditions that make them look savage. They even made, they even made the Indians, uh, the native Indians in Buffalo, kill and eat dogs in the Coliseum to show their savage nature compared to the wonderful Victorian. So you have these human zoos trying to show the wonderful evolution of you know the person in the 1800s. And the second thing you've got is massive historical exhibits. And I mean massive from the standpoint of thousands of um, actors portraying roles to try to bring that history to life. I have my book here at the St. Louis fair. So I'm just going to read this one paragraph because this will then, this will take your conversation of this topic, wherever you want to go. So this this is just a part of the uh, historical exhibits at the St. Louis world fair. Ancient Rome was a colossal exhibit with over 400 actors employed to give the visitor the illusion of going back in time to the gladiators. A large arena called the Hippodrome showcased chariot races, jousting, boxing, and gladiatorial clashes with 200 persons, 40 animals, including tigers, lions, and leopards. The finale was a reproduction of Nero's Rome burning. Tyrolean Alps was a nine-acre reproduction of the Alpine region in Bavaria, Germany. It had 21 village cottages, a cathedral, and gigantic mountains of staff. Visitors could ride a simulated tram car through the Alps where real cattle and goats would be in pasture. Jerusalem covered 11 acres and included 22 streets, 300 buildings, replicated with a stable which Jesus was said to be born, the Golden Gate, the Mosque of Omar, and more. Over 1,000 people from Jerusalem traveled to the United States to participate and work at the exhibit. You could work down the streets of Cairo, smoke a water pipe, ride a camel, haggle for carpets, or walk through a replica of Luxor Temple. The streets of Seville saw a replica of the Plaza de Torres in Madrid. The Great Siberian was a train ride that utilized illusion to make one believe they were on the Great Great cross- a Russian Railway. The Irish Village was entertaining via a replica of St. Lawrence's Gate. Paris replicated France during medieval times. There was a Constantinople, a Chinese village, and the streets of old St. Louis. Can you imagine the not just the scale of what you were seeing, but it's the fact they had actors interacting with you that would fool people into thinking you were really there. So the experience was genuine history.
0: I mean, that's absolutely outrageous isn't it just to even comprehend that they would go to the expense and time I, I can't actually I can't actually fathom it in my mind using my modern mind that they would do that that they would create such an outrageous uh simulation I guess a simulation of what the what history was and then take people there and like you said and um, th- there would have to be such a strong motive for that you know for somebody to there'd have to be such a strong and, and such a power behind it I guess such a powerful force behind the whole idea of doing this and that where people sat somebody must have sat around a table and said this is what we're going to do we're going to take it across the world and how do you, nobody would do this on that scale would they I mean if, if me and you were sat here and we had to just say let's say we had a billion dollars if we was going to do this would say right come on at what size are we going to do this well we might do it in one building you know
1: yeah. And more so, all the fairs lost money. They lost a lot of money. And as we know, one of the reasons rich people get rich is because they don't lose money. So they're losing millions of dollars at the time, and they keep deciding, we're going to do this again. We're going to do this again, which indicates even more, it's an agenda being presented. It's, not a, it's, it's certainly not a money-making idea.
0: Yeah and you see this all the time in 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 uh you see this all the time in finance in history like people would say well why would a country go to war you know going to war's the worst thing you can do you're going to lose a lot of your most brightest minds and young young men you're going to lose a lot of your um, infrastructure why would you go to war and it's like well no war's extremely profitable it depends who you are and i guess with these fairs it may have been loss producing to begin with but if you can control history i mean it's, it's like if you go to the fossils of dinosaurs, how much does a, the fossil of a dinosaur fetch? Well, it, it fetches tens of millions. So, you know, if you can fabricate a history around dinosaurs and come up with some fossils, then fantastic. You're going to get rich. But first and foremost, you would need to indoctrinate people into believing that dinosaurs existed. And I'm not saying they don't didn't exist. But my point is, if you do the initial outlay, then all of a sudden the rewards come later on. And I imagine after these world fairs there was so much potential for people to earn money these people that put on the fairs because they've created an entirely false history out of it
1: and as we know those uh, as orwell says right those who control the future control the present but those who control the present are the ones who control the past so the control of the past and the control of the belief of the past is so important because if anyone wants to say why is things the way they are there's always an answer oh because of 1,000 years ago, this happened. 500 years ago, this happened. And oh, okay, it makes sense. Okay, I understand. If if the history was completely different and whenever we said, well, things actually were pretty good back there, we'll be like, well, why are we dealing with this crap today? You know. The, the, so the control of the past is so important. And I think what's even more important, which I realized when I wrote the book, because I wrote it in 2019 before our, our current insanity started in 2020. And I was talking about resets back then, that, that the world fairs were the marker point um Coming out of the last reset that so I'm pretty sure this whole this whole reality this whole simulation was reset in the eighteen hundreds, there was a giant time factor, of like nothing happening, and then the fairs sort of were like, This is the reindoctrination of the population that they've brought, created, kept over, because most of it's all children, like we see these orphan trains and you just see it's children everywhere. So that's a great way to re re-indoctrinate a population is have mostly children who have no background, no understanding will believe what they're told. And all you need is a certain group of adults who will be doing the teaching for you. And within a generation, you've got your message ingrained across the world. And I'm pretty sure that's what we saw. And like you say, once you've got it, once you've got it down, it becomes unquestionable. And uh, it's only been in the last say the last 10 or 15 years really that because of the amount of photographs that have appeared on the internet that's really where it comes from it's it's because so many photographs have become instantly available they're not just in libraries anymore and you have to go to the St. Louis library and you have to look through their photos of the world's fair you know now they're just on the internet and enough people started asking what the heck's going on like these photographs do not make any sense logically with what we're supposed to say about that time frame so it's actually, I think a lot of the unraveling of the history now is a combination of there's like a zeitgeist, you know, like that. Like, it's been going for like 15 years. There was like, first it was a flat earth that became the first zeitgeist for a while. Then it became the Mandela effect. Then it went to, um, I can't remember what it went to next, but then it went to the world's fairs and now it's kind of starting to move on to something or like the stolen history, I guess you'd call it like a, like a, these mud flood Tartary ideas, whatever. And then now it's moving on to something else, but there's, for a a huge section there it was like everybody was starting to get interested it's
0: like history finally if if i tried to write this book 20 years ago i don't think anybody would have read it that is so fascinating and and what you said there was really i think it was bang on because what's happening now is we're living in this transition where we didn't have the technology 100 years ago and then we had the primitive versions and now we've got the advanced versions and what that means is that we're all able to go look back at things they were claiming and there is there is evidence of in, say, film or cinematography and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, this looks absolutely ridiculous and what you're telling us can't be true. Uh, the moon landings, for example, anyone can go back now. I mean, at the time, it would have been so believable. But 50 years later, technology has moved on so much that you look back at it and say, oh, this is absurd. Like, no, come on. How can you still push this story? Yeah.
1: So, so it actually is a huge. It is a huge part of the unraveling, particularly of the historical narrative. Is is the uh, the access average people have to to the materials themselves, and the new uh, way the way technology is now for us to be, yeah to be able to look back and say, well, wait, that's Photoshop. That's an early version of it, but that's that's not a real photograph. That's been Photoshopped back in nineteen twelve. So what the hell are we looking at? Because that's one of those strange things too, when you look at the photograph and you can see the the way, one of, one of the weirdest, they call these vanilla skies. If you look at these photographs of cities a hundred years ago, and it's obvious, you can see the where they've outlined where the buildings are. And then they literally just whitewashed the back as if like, well, what's in the background that they don't want us to see. So there's like so many weird things when you look into this stuff, it's just, and of course, for everyone to to who's listening again, you know, I don't have the answer for it. I don't have. I can't say I know the truth. I can't say I know what really happened in the 1800s or the 1700s or even with the moon landing. But what I can do, what all of us can do, is we can we can take apart the narrative. We can say this is what they tell us. Can we prove the truth or prove it's false? And it becomes so easy to prove that they're false that at least we can say, well, we know that's not true then it becomes, well, What well, we don't know what is, but at least we don't have to keep believing what we've been told up to now. And that's the first step of breaking free of some of these ideas.
0: Yeah, and right now we're being told by the controllers, you know, they've literally said, this is the great reset. And we are seeing them actually, before our very eyes, rewrite history. They're actually changing historical narratives. They're creating new movies, new stories that change the skin color, the gender, and all of these things. And we have no idea how many of these are going to last and actually replace the old stories. And uh, we can see this happening. And also we can see the same mechanism in play that it's not for you or I that they're doing these things, Howdy. what they're doing it for is for the children because that's the focus. It's to indoctrinate the children and all the focus is on kids. It's to get them to believe this, uh, these radical ideologies and these ideas about transhumanism. It's not for us because we're not going to be here in 50 years, but they are. And therefore anyone we will be able to say, well, if this is happening now and we're seeing it, then surely it's happened before again and again and again. But do you have any idea how many times, uh, Howdy, how many times this has gone on?
1: No, but yeah, I would say it's more than one, maybe less than 15. But we see, there's a problem right there that's, we're already touching the second hour a little bit, but we've got an issue of once you begin to see reality as a simulation, that is not the real world we've been told it is that it, it it is you know that's the best word to describe not actually a simulation i'm not saying it's actually a computer program that's just a metaphor for what this is but if you're dealing with a simulation then a simulation has a start time you know like if you're playing a video game it starts on a particular day in the video game so that so let's just for fun let's just say the starting of our simulation was june the 1st 1910 let's just for fun that means everything before June 1, 1910, never happened. Doesn't even exist. It's just backstory to a Westworld robot. And to make it even more bizarre, what if the start date was June 1st, 2016? That means all the things we even think about our own life and our own personal experiences are not even real they're just backstory to a robot. So you've got this issue too, of like, if we can track down, it's, I don't even want to say what, when the resets happen, can we track down the first day of the simulation? Because that's a really important part because then we know the simulation experience from then till now has some form of at least reality to it. And everything else is never even happened in our reality. It's all just a complete story. And almost like we don't even have to study it because it doesn't exist. So to me, that's one of the big things is figuring out, can we find the, the simulation start date? Uh, and I've had a lot of people give me suggestions as to what that start date might be, right? But uh, obviously, like, like this, the zero idea, which is the dumbest uh, way of dating anything you could ever think of, right? We've got a zero date and then we have to have a one going this way, but a one going that way. So I I always wonder what the what the choice of a zero date actually meant that's very computer-like thinking so uh, I don't know for sure but almost I could almost say that you you would you had a reset in the 1800s there probably was a reset at the end of like what you might call Temple building time so really old Egyptian Greek Temple period and there was definitely one um at the time when when uh, before after pyramid building they're, 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 when you go to the sites, they are so different, so unique and energetically so different. In fact, when I would go to the pyramid sites, whether it's in like Teotihuacan in Mexico or in the big sites in, in, in Egypt, I felt like I not just was in an older time like I do at other sites. I felt like I was actually in another universe. Like it just it felt like I was touching a period that is so not here that it's literally it's kind of like not in our timeline. It's just like a remnant. Uh, it's one of the things I enjoy most about going to those sites because I just feel like uh, I'm almost in a time before pure evil even existed, if I can say it that way. It's really, really interesting feeling. So it's happened. These things have
0: happened a lot, yeah, and we're in another one. That's so interesting. And maybe this question would have been best in in uh, the second part, uh, but it might lead us into it. Uh, do you feel, or have you ever considered that? where we are has actually had something overlaid on top of it. So there was something of purity that was here before, something that was real, and it almost like it got captured. And that's when the simulations had to start to be uh, put in to, to 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 reformulate our view of where it was. Because it's strange that there's these places that have almost this kind of divine and um, pure energy, it sounded like what you were saying. Uh, maybe you could elaborate. But it's almost like it doesn't quite match up that now we've got this kind of more dark and demonic Phase of our history where everything is warped and manipulated and shifted.
1: Um, I I know that's a theory, and a lot of a lot of people would subscribe to that theory. But I still I don't subscribe to the theory that this place was ever pure at all. This was this has been a simulation right from the first second. It just had different layers of let's call it ways of extracting energy from those that are within. And at certain times, I think in the past, it, it would have, it would seem, or would it, it be, would be a better experience than what we've kind of gone through in the last few hundred years, just because the uh, the simulation was extracting energy differently. And I think as the simulation went forward, just like anything, the simulation is growing so it's not like it's been like this is the box of the simulation and it, as the simulation grows it of course needs more energy because it's i don't think the simulation is being fed externally by power it's being fed by what's in the simulation. It's, it's sick it's actually sick how it's being done but it's like using using like for example us we the creatures the uh the video the video game characters to power the video game it's it's, it's insane so as this as the simulation has grown it's needed more power. So it's had to, I think the resets are really changes of energy extraction. So if someone is looking into what's going on now, if you think of it, don't think of it in terms of government, don't think of it in terms of ideology or commercial or money, it's about energy and energy extraction that might start explaining very well what's going on and why it's going on. So I I don't think it's, no, I don't think this place has ever been truly a pure place. I think there is a truly pure place I think there is a is a place of of what you might call totality or true unity or true completeness but it's not in platos k right it's not in the simulation itself and it's just there's just varying layers over time and over location you know if everything is here evil to the max everyone would figure it out it's pretty obvious so just like a slot machine you kind of you have to have the person put a dollar in and get 75 cents out and they think it's not so bad. They're they're doing okay. Eventually, you do you lose all your money, but it, it's over time. You're not noticing that you're losing it, losing it. And I think that's kind of how it's been here as a as a as a metaphor. It's it just goes over. But certainly, when the pure whenever pyramids were built, it was a very different time, and there was and it would have been a much easier time to live. That doesn't mean I would say there's it, it's not sane either, but it would be more sane than now.
0: And as we look at what's taking place right now with this current reset, and we're seeing it kind of happening, and we can kind of feel the trajectory of where they want to take it to this kind of uber technological age. So it's like everything we've had before was just a prelude to this kind of hyper technologicalization, where we're going to be merged with machines. Like, how does that fit into um, your understanding of what's what's taking place? And do you feel like that is part of an illusion? That that is where that is just something that's being used to keep us trapped in this state of fear and anxiety? Or do you feel like that is truly where they want to take us into this transhuman AI future?
1: Uh, I think actually this this simulation is ending and they're building an, and a new one has been built. And uh, we're in a middle period right now. We're in like a gap. The old one's not finished yet, but the new one hasn't started. So the good, we'll do good news and bad news. The good news first is that that means we're in a doorway. We're in a doorway space of great opportunity because literally we're not we're not really stuck to either simulation yet we're we're kind of we got one foot out all of us and if we really want to move beyond all this right now we can the opportunity is it's not easy it's hard it's work um but it's available it maybe maybe greater than it's been for hundreds of years so we have this one great opportunity the bad news, of course, is when when you begin to realize it's energy that's what it 's about so what is what do they kind of do with the new simulation? Well, in the way it was today, if this is me and this is the computer interface, when it's drawing energy from me, there's a space in the middle, so you lose energy, right Energy's being transferred, but it gets lost. If you merge me and the and the machine together, there's no energy loss, so it makes sense in a sense, they don't have to make more. You don't have to make more energy machines, us, so to speak. You just need to merge the ones you have with the machine, and there's no wow. now. There's no energy loss. So I think when you see it that way, that that's really what it's about. Again, it's all about energy, and it's all about how not to how not to lose energy uh, or waste it from the extraction process. Simple way I can describe it. So to me, uh, the reset is is about it, it's building a new simulation. So I, I don't think this this isn't going i just personally don't think this is going to last much longer and individual divine spark souls us will be in a sense based on how much we know or how much we are aware will either have take our take the doorway and go kind of the story of the tv show westworld take the door and go to the door and leave or you're going to go in the next simulation, which will be another layer down in the matrix. And we can go into all of that in the next hour. But that's just because it does fit in with the world fairs and all of this history. The last time that I think, so, again, something similar happened. One simulation ended um, and a new one was was built. It looked like it would have been the same one. But I think it, we, dropped, we dropped another layer in the matrix. It was another matrix in a matrix that started up with the world fairs. And that's the one we're in. And so, in one sense, we don't want to—we don't want to focus ourselves on not going into the next one. I think a lot of this should be used to say, "Well, how did I get tricked into coming into this one?" So that I'm going rather than worrying about going forward, I'm going backwards. How I want to go back to the origin because, as you go back to the origin, you go back to the origin of yourself, you go back to the origin of everything, and that's would be that would be not here anymore. I,
0: I it's it's so interesting to hear you lay out these things. Um of course I've read read you I can listen to your podcast uh previous interviews but it's so interesting to hear you lay it out because so much of what you say resonates with me even though I have a completely different take on it in fact everything you say would align with how I see things it's just I have different views of how we got there you know i i feel the same thing that they are harvesting our energy it's just i see this more from maybe uh, with that there's this collective consciousness and keeping us in a state of fear and anxiety and isolation is how they manage to harvest power from us they can use that against us and trap us in this kind of dead materialist kind of viewpoint Uh, and yet you would say this is part of a simulation and that's feeding a system but essentially we both believe the same thing it's just the path we get there is different. And there's so much of what you say that I, I just sit and nod my head and say, Yeah, I I feel the same. It's just I've never contextualized it with the simulation part of it. And I don't actually think it matters to get out of it or whatever it is we're here. I don't think it matters.
1: No, it's, it's all about like like I like I say with everything with this stuff, right? Just like I say with the other stuff. It's all about thesis, it's all about my um how I've seen things over 30 years that it's changed a lot over 30 years. And it's just for people to contemplate. It's just for people to think. It's just for people to ask questions. And then just like you're saying there, it's about coming to your own answers based on, you know, you don't want my answers. You don't want Michael's answers. You want your own and you want your own based on not just the, the material you research, but your own personal experience. If your experience is a key part of building your, what you might call view of the world. And if you don't have an experience, the experiences that match it then then you can't really believe whatever you say you believe you're so you have to match it with the way you've gone through your own life Um, and everything here is just pieces of information
0: for you to to check out that's all you do and i think in terms of how we how we are in this world of course the first and foremost is that you're, you're living in some kind of truth as far as you see it, and that you're acting in ways that are not harming others, you know, you're doing your best to contribute to some kind of common good, you know, you're defending freedom and truth where you can. Uh, But then there is that second level, which is like, okay, you know, you're living a moral life, you've got principles, you're not just uh, succumbing to this kind of nihilistic point of view. But then there has to be something else beyond that, that drives us to continue doing that and to also be willing to fight and die for that if we have to there's been no other time in my life where there's been such threats to our free will and our bodily autonomy and all of those things so i think there has to be something there and i think How you conceptualize that end part is important and uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same as mine or yours or anyone else's, but there has to be something there that enables us to, I guess, give it gives us hope that there is there is an end to the suffering of uh, living under these tyrants. Yeah, believing, turning, turning your back on it and leaving. Okay, so going into part two, Hardy, I'm really excited for where this conversation is going. But before we go, can you just tell listeners where they can find your work, your books, uh, and anything else that you want to share with listeners before we end part one?
1: Sure. Uh, Yeah, thanks for listening, of course. And if you find this stuff potentially interesting, uh, easiest place to go and check um, some of my stuff out, I have a badly named website, egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com. You can get some book information and, and the things that are there, sample chapters. Of course, if you pop over to a place like Amazon, you can also see all the books I have. You don't have to order the books from there. It's just a place where you can easily catch them, and then you can get them wherever you'd like after that. Um, the YouTube channel is kind of there now. It's It's been three years, of and I'm kind of just parking all of the videos there. So you can go over Howdy McCoskey Talks, and I've got a new Locals channel under my name where I'm going to start doing some live streams and some some more things up to date. and. Um, yeah, because we're we're moving into a time, like I say, a great opportunity, but also great change. Things are going to get more and more challenging, and so um, the hope is that people, more people, will begin to start questioning what the hell's going on. Not just now, but what always has gone here, and maybe what I've got is is help for some people to ask some good questions and take a different road than where they've been up to this point. What you are basically.
0: Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.
1: Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time,
0: peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence is...